I hope you brought your Bible with you this morning, and uh, I'd invite you to turn with me to the book of Judges, and we begin chapter 15 this morning. We covered 13 and 14 last week. 13, 14, 15, and 16 all have to do with Samson, and uh, I would think that among all those that we learn about in the book of Judges, Samson is the one you would know the most about, so... I'll spend uh, less time uh, backing the truck up, as it were, to make sure we're all on the same page. The first couple of chapters we looked at have to do with his birth account and his calling uh, to be the savior or judge of Israel before he was born, Uh, the Nazarite vow that was to be uh, kept by him involving not cutting his hair. Uh, not touching anything unclean like a dead animal and have nothing to do with the vine or specifically uh, alcoholic drink. And we learned again uh, last week after he uh, was raised, was a young man in verse 14, he found a girl he wanted to marry. Problem was she was a Philistine and uh, we learned of the, the fallout involving choosing the wrong girl and this wedding feast and a riddle and a bet as part of the riddle and then paying up and the 30 men that lost their lives in order to give up their clothing to hand to these that he was obligated in order to pay his debt. Well, we pick up in chapter 15 today and there's some time that elapses between the end of chapter 14 In the beginning of chapter 15, we learn that in the first three words. After some days, at the time of wheat harvest, Samson went to visit his wife with a young goat. And he said, I will go into my wife in the chamber. But her father would not allow him to go in. Her father said, I really thought that you utterly hated her. So I gave her to your companion. Is not her younger sister more beautiful than she? Please take her instead. Samson said to them, This time I shall be innocent in regard to the Philistines when I do them harm. We'll stop right there. This is God's word. Let's ask for his help to understand and obey it. Father in heaven, again we ask for your help to understand your word and to apply it to our lives in order to obey it. Be our teacher. Make us good students. We ask this in your name. Amen. Well, the tone of the writing here, the, the, the way that the author tells this story, and they're always, especially in narrative form, telling us a story. And before we heard this the first time, perhaps as children, or maybe this is the first time, we don't know this information. It's being told to us, and we paint the pictures in our mind. So, As we read these words, different thoughts, even emotions, ideas come to our mind. And there's clearly a shift in tone here. Before uh, we read of of Samson going to his father's house enraged at what had happened and the slaughter of these 30 men that he had to kill. Well, after some days, this chapter starts. And if we're... Watching this as something on the screen, I'm sure the music underscoring what is said next. At the time of wheat harvest, Samson went to visit his wife 
with a young goat. I'm, I'm sure that there'd be a specific type of music for that. And then the music would begin to change as we read into the next lines about how he's refused entry. His wife's been given to another man. He gets offered the younger daughter who's supposed to be prettier. And then they all learn there's one thing for certain. Nobody's going to sell Samson what he wants or what he likes. Even his parents tried to convince him it was a wrong move for the older sister. He said, she's right in my own eyes. Get her for me. So if Samson only does what Samson wants to do, and we, we, we read this, the time of the wheat harvest, that's springtime. So that's a pleasant thought. And that has to do with their agricultural calendar as far as the barley and the wheat harvest, much as what we learned in the book of Ruth on Wednesday nights. Uh, and then his arrival or his, his journey to the house of his wife and that she stayed with her father and instead of going home with him is odd enough. But carrying a young goat, because what's better than flowers and chocolate <laughs> than goat? But this probably has to do with something for the whole family. And uh, what's sad about all this is that it's almost as if Samson thinks that time has passed and I'll go back and we'll just act like none of that ever happened. Forget the fact that this woman and her father were threatened with their lives if they didn't give the secret to that riddle so they weren't out those 30 changes of clothes. You would think that this man would not want to have anything to do with Samson. The fact that he's refusing him entry is because inside the house with this woman may actually be the other man that he's given her to. That would result in disaster, I'm sure. Um, And really, to do so is understandable given the way that the feast ended as far as this man, uh, the father-in-law, goes. But they offer to give him the younger daughter, who he adds is more beautiful. That, I think, is telling. And I'm speculating here because we just don't see it in the text. But why would he want anything to do with this man, given what had happened the first go-round? Maybe he's afraid of him. Maybe he's seen what this man's capable of. He's seen his short fuse. And maybe it's worth a younger daughter to get him off your back. I'm not sure. But still, this is what is offered. And then he says, This time I shall be innocent in regard to the Philistines when I do them harm. So even though he thinks that this is all over, can be smoothed over, sooner than later this music begins to change. He's mad again. This time he says he's going to be innocent. As if to say, you know, I might have flew off the handle in rage with the other 30 guys. And maybe I wish I didn't do that. But this time, this time is for real. Because you deserve it, you've got it coming. So really with uh, little as far as a transition, we read in verse 4, here's what he has up his sleeve. So Samson went and caught 300 foxes and took torches. And he turned them tail to tail and put a torch between each pair of tails. And when he had set fire to the torches, he let the foxes go into the standing grain of the Philistines and set fire to the stacked grain and the standing grain, as well as the olive orchards. So now it makes sense that the author would tell us that this is springtime during the wheat harvest. And it just so happens that Palestine or the 
the Philistines, Philistia. I get Palestine and Philistia mixed up. Um, But this is on the lower coastal plain. It's perfect for growing barley, wheat, all sorts of grains. And this is the time of year where the harvest is about to come in. So it's all there. It's turned the right color. It's ready to be gathered up. And Samson can hit them directly in the pocketbook here if he does this correctly. Now, I know what you're thinking. 300 foxes, tie their tails together, put a torch between them, turn them loose. 150 pairs. Now, you, you, they really don't have any reference point for a stunt like this. I mean, you might have heard like I did as a child that there's this thing you can do by tying two cat's tails together. But I will, even as a child, now you can't take two tails and tie them together. It would involve some sort of rope, I suppose, with like a, a, some sort of a clinch knot that would tighten as they tried to get loose. And then to tie between them some form of incendiary device. And really, as far as the commentators go, the idea would be tying them together and their struggle to get loose from one another they're more likely to zigzag through those fields or, or stay where they're put rather than running straight off and away. Now, if you think the sheer size of this is difficult to, to believe, 300 foxes, and I suppose with a certain type of a, of a funneled trap and the, the fact that these jackals were all over the place, that might be doable with some help. But remember, this guy killed a lion with his bare hands. He's going to pull new ropes apart like they're nothing here in just a moment. He killed 30 Philistines already. By the end of today, he's going to kill 1,000 of them with a jawbone of a donkey. Then he's going to push the house down next week in chapter 16 and kill the 3,000 people in the gallery as the whole building comes down on himself. This guy's the epitome of uh, that guy whose stories are bigger than everyone else's. So we take this as scripture. This is what the story says, and that's what took place. Um, Let's continue reading. And in, uh, if you remember with Gideon, how he tore down the, the grove, the altar of Baal. You remember that? That was the first thing the Lord told him to do, which caused a problem the next morning after, right? And everybody wants to find out what the same thing here. Look at verse 6. Then the Philistines said, who has done this? They said, Samson, the son-in-law of the Temnite, because he's taken his wife and given her to his companion. So the people asking questions here think, well, that sounds like sufficient cause. He's mad. Someone's given his wife away. And the Philistines came up and burned her and her father with fire. This is precisely the thing they were trying to avoid when they were were blackmailed into giving the secret to the riddle. That they'll burn them in their house with fire. Well, that has happened now. Verse 7, Samson said to them, If this is what you do, I swear I will be avenged on you. After that, I will quit. He's probably worn out from a night with 300 foxes. But then he says, listen, we were even last night, but now you've done this. So I'm going to avenge you here too. And then I'll call it quits. 
as if this type of a warfare ever reaches uh, even Stephen. It never reaches even Stephen. There's only one way out of this type of conflict, and we'll see. One of them is going to be done with, and the other will remain standing. Verse 8, And he struck them hip and thigh with a great blow, and he went down and stayed in the cleft of the rock of Etam. So the fact that the father-in-law is referred to as the Temnite here, he has, we, we know he's the Temnite when the author introduced him to us, but from that point on he's just known as the father-in-law, but now to bring Temnite back is looking at these Philistines as if they're the strangers we were when we read it to begin with. So what's going on here? This is signifying that uh, the tension is broadening. This is escalating quickly. These aren't locals that are asking questions here. Local PD. No, these are the feds that are here. And they want to know what's going on and who did this. So they described this father-in-law, a Temnite, who had a daughter who was taken given to someone else. And that's why Samson is, is mad. And for the time being, they take it out by punishing Samson's wife and father. They were closer. Something needs to happen. Someone's head needs to roll. We'll worry about Samson in time. He's the more dangerous of the two. But again, they're going to incur his wrath. He swears his revenge. Then it'll be done. Now, what is meant by striking them hip and thigh? We don't know what that means. It's the only place in Scripture where we see it. Uh, the best guess from one of the commentators I thought was fitting was maybe a wrestling move that would render the opponent completely useless or smitten uh, but to strike someone hip and thigh was their way maybe even Philistine way of saying uh, shock and awe and we suppose that this involves the people who had set the house on fire with his wife and her father-in-law but we really don't have any play-by-play -play as to what happened just that he struck them hip and thigh style with a great blow but what happened as a result he needs to flee and hide in a cave so he realizes what he's done but the costs now are stacking and he goes to hide so look at verse 9 what happens while he's hiding in the cave then the Philistines came up and encamped in Judah and made a raid on Lehi verse 10 the men of Judah said why have you come up against us so Lehi is in the territory of the tribe of Judah they said, we've come up to bind Samson, to do to him as he did to us. So here we have the first official wave of military action uh, as repercussions of Samson's heretofore personal vendettas. Now everyone's in trouble. They've been invaded. They're, the enemy's now encamping within the territory of Israel in the tribe of Judah's vicinity. And the people that are there ask why, which might be a good question. And they might not have anything or any understanding of what Samson has been doing. They don't know about the foxes. They don't know about the burned house. They don't know about uh, the Timnite and his daughter. So what they tell him is very simplistic. We're here for Samson. And we're going to do to him what he's done to us. So their answer uh, exposes their 
their royal ethic. Now, what do we learn in the New Testament? How are we to treat others? Like we want to be treated ourselves, right? Now, the way they are motivated is we're going to do to him what he's done to us. Uh, they're not taking the moral high ground here. This is the moral low ground. Get rid of this problem known as Samson, who is public enemy number one. So with a potential international crisis on their hands, Judah, the one who were talking to the Philistines with them camped in their backyard, what they decide to do is actually very disappointing. And it's going to begin to color up the theological significance of what is going on at this point in the book of Judges, which will demonstrate Israel's absolute lowest point. Their answer is seen in verse 11. Then 3,000 men of Judah, 3,000 of them, went down to the cleft of the rock of Etam. So his cover's blown. At least 3,000 men know where he is. And said to Samson, Do you not know that the Philistines are rulers over us? What then is this that you have done to us? He said to them, As they did to me, so I have done to them. Same thing the Philistines said. And they said to him, We have come down to bind you, that we may give you into the hands of the Philistines. Samson said to them, Swear to me that you will not attack me yourselves. They said, No, we will only bind you and give you into their hands. We will surely not kill you. So they bound him with two new ropes and brought him up from the rock. Now what's going on here? We read between the lines and try to see this as it would if we could hear the tone of their voice and understand the background of where they're living. They feel like the opening question should settle the matter. What was the opening question? Don't you know that these are the people who are in charge of us? Don't you know that it's the Philistines that we're subservient to? And you have to go act like this and cause trouble for all of us. Don't ruin it for us, Samson. We've got a good thing going. This is not the Moabites. These aren't cruel. In fact, our lives are better now that we're under the Philistines. And we talked about this last week. Their military was better. Their economy was better. Their agriculture was better. Their culture was better. All these things were better. Israel envied the Philistines. Now, it kind of goes downhill from here. The next time we're going to see them in one of the stories you'd remember from Sunday school is Goliath and that war with the Philistines. But at this point, everything seems to be fine. The borders are open. And Israel is precariously perched at a vital pivot point. Are they going to be assimilated into this Philistine culture? Because annihilation doesn't seem to be a worry. They're not being attacked. They're not being starved. Their women aren't being abused. They just seem to be having a good old time. So what do they decide to do with the judge that God has sent them? Tie him up and hand deliver him to the enemy. That's what they decide to do. So a couple of things to, to think about. Again, theological ramifications are, are within these few lines we've just read. Judah is determined to avoid all confrontation at all costs. That says a lot about their 
heart and their head at this point in history. Another thing we can determine here is that Samson may be morally stupid. I've seen that over and again. But he's not street stupid. What does he want to know? You're not going to kill me, right? Just promise me you won't kill me. Because I think in his mind, he's actually looking forward to the next round. He said that would be it. But guys like that don't just walk away from a fight. There's some people that want me. Sure, go ahead, tie me up, but you promise you won't kill me. You give me over to them. And, and even then you can think, being killed by your own countrymen would be worse for a guy who loves to read his own press clippings rather than being tortured by the enemy. That would make a better headline. So he's determined. It won't go down this way. He'll take his licks with the Philistines. And then third, Samson has adopted the same ethic as the Philistines. I'm only doing to them what they've done to me. They started it. That's always his story. And when enemies like this meet, there's never a solution. You tell me, do we ever outgrow that? I mean, if that's the way we are in the sandbox, does that change when we're adults? I'm going to do to him what he did to me. Now, what, what, what cures us of living like that? I'm going to do to them what they've done to me. I don't know, something like being saved and uh, having God as a higher authority. So anything that's ever done to us, it's not necessarily done to us, it's done to Him. But when you've lost your identity as God's people, and we haven't seen anybody crying out to God in several chapters so far, especially the last time we've seen the Lord is when the angel came to declare His birth. But up until now, that's crickets. I don't see any of that here. So something's got to change. Verse 14, when he came to Lehi, the Philistines came shouting. I bet they were. They're about to get their their trophy. Then the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him. We've seen this before with the lion and uh, at other times. And the ropes that were on his arms became as flax that has caught fire. And his bonds melted off his hands. And he found a fresh jawbone of a donkey and put out his hand and took it. And with it he struck 1,000 men with the jawbone of a donkey. Now look at verse 13. This should be in poetic format as far as the way that the print is uh, aligned and the indentations and so forth. Because this is a song. It's poetry. Just like when Deborah was singing, Samson's now singing. His is a lot shorter of a song and has nothing to do with praising God but gloating about what he's just done. Samson said, with the jawbone of a donkey, heaps upon heaps, with the jawbone of a donkey, I have struck down a thousand men. And as soon as he had finished speaking, he threw away the jawbone out of his hand, and that place was called Ramoth-Lehi. He named that after what he had done. So this little uh, part of the story is reminiscent of the lion attack. Remember, the lion came roaring. And then the Spirit of the Lord rushed on him, and then he tore the lion. We talked about this as one would tear a young goat. Now, this is the same format. The Philistines come uh, roaring. 
and shouting. The Spirit of the Lord rushes upon him, and then he commences to tearing the Philistines into pieces. Same format, just a different set of uh, enemies here. This time, however, with an improvised weapon. Actually tells us in here that it was a fresh jawbone. And any of you that have ever gathered up uh, antlers or the skull of, of, a, of a deer in the woods, somebody shot it and tracked it and gave up and there it rotted. You know the difference between a dry, brittle skull uh, that you could probably kick around and it falls into pieces or one that's otherwise fresh. It's got some elasticity, makes a good weapon, and it would still have the teeth, right? You know, the teeth fall out after it dries. Well, this one's a fresh one. The author wants to make sure you guys know how this story went down and what he was using uh, to dispatch these 1,000 Philistines. Then when the work is done, he sings this song. Now, there's no way for us to understand what this song would be like. We're not Hebrew. We don't know how they sing or their style of music. There's nothing like having to ride in the car with someone who likes different music than you do. You just don't get it. One guy's enjoying it. The other one's tolerating it. Well, for this, and it's a short song, it is interesting to know that the word in Hebrew, Hebrew for donkey and the word in Hebrew for heaps is spelled the same way. So there's a way for this to rhyme in the Hebrew that it wouldn't rhyme when we read it. And a double meaning of, of a word. A pile is the same word for jawbone. So it's kind of like he's saying, with this donkey's jawbone, I've made a pile of donkeys out of these people. Would be at least trying to... You ever had somebody tell you a story? And you're just not getting it the way they want you to get it. And in frustration, they just say, well, you just needed to be there. You just needed to be there to hear Samson with, with doubtless blood covering him. He's done with a thousand men, drops this jawbone on the ground, and begins to sing a song with laughter, I suppose. And that's the end of that gruesome story. Drops the, I uh, heard one commentator say, forget the, the mic drop, this is a jaw drop. <laughs> He's done. Um, but if we read on, it's not, it's a very short-lived victory dance and song. His strength is spent. He's acutely aware of his own needs as a human. He's not Superman. And he fears he's about to die of thirst. And even more frightful than that is the idea that he'd be given over into the hands of the enemy. Look at verse 18. And he was very thirsty. And he called upon the Lord and said, You have granted this great salvation by the hand of your servant. And shall I now die of thirst and fall into the hands of the uncircumcised? And that was a way to cut at any non-Jewish people. You'll hear this a lot with uh, the, the warfare against uh, the Philistines uh, under David. And God split open the hollow place that is at Lahai, and water came out of it. And when he drank, his spirit returned, and he revived. Therefore, the name of it was called in Hakore. So he's naming all kinds of things this day. 
And it is at Lahai to this day. So apparently that spring continued to produce from that point on, at least until this was written. And he judged Israel in the days of the Philistines 20 years. Now every time since, that has signaled the end of a, of a chapter, of a story, and on to the next. We've still got another chapter of Samson. We haven't even gotten to the Delilah part. So this is odd that it would end that way, as if to, at this point, signal perhaps the end of his doing his own thing and perhaps the beginning of his judging for 20 years that would end at his death when he pushes the building down on his head and everyone else's. But finally, something is seen right here in this passage we haven't seen yet in Samson's story. Someone is crying out to God. He's thirsty. He thinks he's going to die. He doesn't want to be given over to the enemy. So he begins to pray. He cries out to the Lord. Every cycle of judges has had a crying out part except this one. It fits with what we've seen so far. Israel's not crying out. They're not in misery. They're not suffering. In fact, they've got it so good, they'd rather give up Samson than jeopardize going through that all again. But nobody's praying except for Samson. Now, the words of this great salvation that he's describing here, um, you have granted this great salvation by the hand of your servant, and shall I now die? That great salvation echoes the words spoken by the angel to his mother, don't they? This is going to be the one who will begin to save Israel from the Philistines. So God is getting what he wants. The whole purpose was to put a wedge between these two groups of people, the Philistines and the Israelites. And it looks as if Samson is finally understanding that that is what's going on. Perhaps this section right here is why he's in Hebrews 13. As you know, we've had a hard time after we read about these guys in Hebrews 13, finding out why they're in Hebrews 13. Where's their faith? Well, this is probably what that author is speaking of. Samson's crying out for himself, of course, so he doesn't wind up in the hands of the enemy. But it seems he rightfully understands this great salvation to have been the work of God and understands that it's not just his honor that is at stake here. Think about it. He's crying, thirsty. Lord, what good would it do if the Philistines get my body and parade me around as their trophy? If I'm the one to start the fight, please tell me it's not over yet. It seems to be what's going on here. So he judged Israel 20 years in the days of the Philistines, which that's different too. In the days of the Philistines. So during his time of judgment, the Philistines are not thrown off. His work begins and ends during the Philistine reign, which says something else. He didn't complete the, the task. And it was never said that he would, that he would just begin it. Somebody else is going to finish. So what can we learn from this? Let's take at least three points here and uh, see where it is we fit into this story, what we can learn from it. In other words, we're trying to assign the little arrow on the map that says you are here, right? 
Number one, oftentimes our most shameful acts of compromise are merely to protect the status quo. I'll say it one more time so you can write it down if you choose. Oftentimes our most shameful acts of compromise are merely to protect the status quo. We learn this from Judah. This will be worth your time. Turn back to the beginning of the book of Judges. Who is it that goes to Samson, ties him up, and delivers him to the enemy? We don't even need to go any further than verse 1. Now after the death of Joshua, it came to pass that the children of Israel asked the Lord, saying, Who shall go up for us against the Canaanites? First to fight against them. Look at verse 2. The Lord said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have delivered the land into his hand. Judah. They were the ones that God chose first. Joshua's dead. They're in the promised land. They've got to drive out the Canaanites. Where do we go from here? Who's going to help us? Judah will help them. That was God's choice. So we've, that's the high point in the book of Judges. Now we've reached the low point. And Judah is the one who says, let's just tie him up and give him over. That's probably our best course of action. Doesn't matter that Jesus, pre-incarnate, angel of the Lord, came and told his parents, this is the one I've specifically called to set an offense between these two people and kick off a war that I intend my people to win. Folks, how often do we do this? And at what point do we do this? When, when is it, if we go back and just rewind our lives, or go back into the archives and get uh, the, the microfilm for Isaac Mooneyham and find out where he compromised, it was usually just to hang on to a status quo, just to keep the peace. You know, this, this new job's working out fine. I found out today that this guy... This isn't going to work. He's, he's expecting that I go along with some things that uh, I shouldn't go along with. But you know what? That's probably going to ruin this job. It's a good thing I've got going here. So um, let's just not worry about it. Now, usually when we're in a tough spot, when we've been beaten up, the Lord has, has got our attention and he's teaching us quite well. Usually our reflexes are intact and when something comes along that we shouldn't compromise on, we stand up on our own two feet. No way. But when things are good, isn't that the bottom of the cycle with the judges? When, it, when they're at peace and they've got everything as they need it, then they begin to get into trouble with idols. And then God turns up the heat and then they actually uh, cry out for help. No crying out for help here. Our most shameful acts of compromise are merely to protect the status quo. This isn't so different than us. We do this all the time. It can happen in Christian homes. It can happen in Christian churches. You know, there's, there is something to those statistics that talk about churches that have plateaued. And then now that we've got it where we want it, don't you change anything. Right? Even if it begins to fall apart as far as their doctrine, their beliefs. Well, I really don't want to shake anything up here. 
How close is the church in America to losing its identity? That really is the point here. Does Judah look like God's chosen instrument of maintaining identity? Making sure that Israel remains pure, push out all those inhabitants. That's the problem here. They're, they're not being destroyed by annihilation, but assimilation. They're losing their identity. We could ask the same thing about our families. Whose identity are our families raised under? Number two. Something is very wrong with us when we cannot identify our true enemy. This kind of is the other side of the coin or hand in hand with the first point. That was Judah's problem. Who's the enemy? You know, when they're reading this, uh, it's almost as if they're saying, Samson, you're fighting against us, not fighting against the Philistines. Don't you know that they're the ones in charge? You're causing problems for us. Now, when we go back in the Old Testament further than we are here, all the way back to to Genesis, when Adam and Eve were unfaithful in the garden, you remember their first act of unfaithfulness against God. What did God do about it? And this is where we get our blueprint for how to take care of the enemy, right? Did he just say, now, snake, get on out of here. I told you about this. I have to put out some mothballs or whatever we do to keep snakes out of the garden. He cursed the garden, not the, the, the garden, the snake. And then what, what was put between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent? Enmity. They're enemies. Do we have anyone in here who likes snakes? I don't like snakes. I've known some people who kept them in cages in their house. I've shot snakes before. I've hoed snakes. I've hit a snake enough to kill it with the end of my fishing rod <laughs> when I came up on him between me and where I was going to be fishing it's called enmity and we would, we would fall short of what the Bible is teaching if we thought all that meant was that people are going to be afraid of snakes until they go to heaven no, people are going to be afraid and at enmity with the enemy, the snake the true enemy of Christians is the devil We need to know where the enemy lines are. And any time in our lives where we're confused as to who the enemy is or who the enemy is using at the moment, then we as Christians have a problem. And we're as in big a mess as Israel is at this low point in their history. So the hostility came from God. The maker of heaven and earth didn't walk away from the garden muttering to himself, I guess you win some, you lose some. No, he set things straight and he ran them out of the garden. And from then there was this major division between him and them because of their sin. And he'll set the world at war if necessary. We see this in scripture. To protect a people for himself. Some would use the words holy war. We're careful with that statement. But that's what we're watching here in the book of Judges. Even redemption is far more an act of violence than we're accustomed to. It took the death of God's Son in order to save us, to remove the enmity 
right? Number three, even if God should choose to begin a work with you, just like he did with Samson or any of us, it's likely someone else will finish it. And this might be part of the reason why Samson has so many problems. He's living for himself. And when a man looks as if he's at the end of himself, much like when he's thirsty and thinks he's going to die, the most horrible thought would be for him to be given over to an enemy who would get the glory for the battle, regardless of that pile of donkeys that he killed with a donkey's jawbone. But look at it. Twenty years, the Philistines were still there. Someone else is going to take care of the Philistines. And they'll be around for a while. David's going to be part of that. Cutting off the giant's head and running up the hill with that mangy, nasty-looking head in his hands. That's another Sunday school story, right? We don't usually talk about that part. But it's not all beginning and ending with Samson. And it never begins and ends with us. Now in the New Testament, we read in Philippians, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. The fact that any of us are not like Samson would be because God has begun a work in us to make us like himself. And who will finish that? He will finish that. This all goes back to an underlying theme through the whole book of Judges. It's a glory war. Who gets the glory? Who deserves it? It's Christ who deserves the glory. Because he's the ultimate judge. And he's the ultimate savior, the deliverer. Samson's just a broken man with a lot of problems that's used by God and made uh, Hebrews 11. But for us, it's the same. Should God so choose to use us, the work won't be accomplished by the time we're done. It will continue. So we we, we need to leave this place better than we found it for those that come behind us. Again, working for the Lord, for His glory. So we better be about our Father's business. We just play a small part. Jesus begins and Jesus ends. And must constantly remind ourselves of this glory war. We need to make sure we understand who the true enemy is. Make sure our kids know where the enemy lines are. Anytime daddy has a hard time articulating where the enemy line is, we've got problems. And remind ourselves that compromise usually comes when we're too chicken to break the status quo and do something crazy for the Lord in that regard Samson's God's man he doesn't mind upsetting people to get something done that said let's close in prayer Father in heaven we thank you for the opportunity to study your word this is one of those chapters where we just seem to read a lot of little stories put together depicting Samson's Great exploits, but Lord, may they teach us something. Something by His example, some of what to do, some of what not to do. Lord, make us, make us what we need to be to have the strength not to compromise, to maintain our identity, 
show us where the enemy is. May we never lose our, our thirst to engage that enemy if necessary for your glory and not our own. And Lord, be pleased to use us and then take us to be with you. And Lord, may we hear when we get there, well done, good and faithful servant. We thank you for our time together in your word today. Seal it to our hearts. We ask this in your name. Amen.